Well, Gateway, good day to you. I'm Kyle. I'm a pastor here. And today we are wrapping up our series, Spirit Greater Than Flesh, which is all about us sitting in front of the character of Jesus, really in uh, the fruit of the Spirit or this virtue list that we receive in Galatians 5. And if you remember, all the way back in 2020, we started this series as an extension from Advent, where we were looking at love and joy and peace and have continued in that virtue list in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And our sole hope in out this throughout this whole series has been to be transformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus, that the Spirit would be the animating presence in the life of our church and in each and every one of us. And my hope personally is that this series would would prove to be, would serve as a reference point for our community, that we would know who it is that we are being transformed into as we continue to follow Jesus in these forthcoming weeks and months and years. But today is perhaps the most challenging and maybe the most significant facet of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, because self-control seems to activate the life of the Spirit in the follower of Jesus. Or in Paul's language, self-control is really where we continue to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit, or as we keep in step with the Spirit. And I don't know how you feel about self-control. I, like I personally still bristle a little bit when it's talked about, whether it's Jesus and the writings in the New Testament or even just in conversation, because self-control reminds me that I have within me these disordered desires. I have these hungers and longings and ambitions that in and of themselves kind of keep Jesus at arm's length. They, I hold tightly to them and say, okay, Jesus, you can, you can have the bulk of my human experience. You can have the bulk of my life, but these things I'm just going to kind of tuck down because I don't know if I really want you to touch those things, to transform those things. Self-control reminds me that I keep those things to myself. And maybe you resonate with that. Maybe, maybe you don't. Either way, this teaching leads us to confront that many of us desire the life of Jesus, we, we desire a life full of love and joy and peace and hope, but we also don't really want to take up the lifestyle of Jesus. We don't want to follow self-denial as a pathway to self-control. And hold on to that because that is what we will be looking at today, self-denial as a pathway to self-control. And so to start, we need to define some terms and we need to define our path. First, we need to know what we're talking about when we're talking about self. And second, we need to see how it is that Jesus invites us to bring that reality under control. And so first, self. Uh, this term is itself difficult to define. So the self is itself difficult to define. And um, maybe you took like an intro to philosophy class or you knew somebody who did, uh, then it's likely that you've done this dance around the moral and ethical implications of self and then quickly forgot the steps because the language is kind of technical. And if we're honest, self feels a bit squishy. Like it's, it's hard to get your hands around. What, what does it actually mean? And so I, I, 
to, to be clear, like we're not doing philosophy here. Uh, this is a, a teaching that leads us to Jesus, Lord willing. Um, so as followers of Jesus, any conversation that we have about self, it's intricately linked to our life with God as those who bear his image. So it's about who we are. And for me, this is just helpful to know and maybe referential, uh, the work of Reyes Anderson on self has been foundational. His work links up kind of three fields, the uh, psychological, the theological, and the pastoral. So most of his work is in practical theology. And so Reyes Anderson, I mean, he, I hope what he has helped me see translates well for us as a church. And Anderson, he locates uh, the heart in the biblical language as perhaps the most helpful place for us to think about self. And the heart and the biblical imagination is really, it's the seat, the center, the core of our mind, our will, our intellect, how you could even describe someone who says like their heart's ambition. It's like their core purposes, their self. And the biblical imagination equates to heart, or Anderson kind of says it this way, he says, the heart is the character and operating power of the self. I guess in less technical terms, we can work with this little definition that the self is who and how we are in relation to God, to one another, to our neighbors, and to the world around us. And Really, this is how we see, how we perceive, and how we live in the world. So it's, it's both intrapersonally, that's like how we think about ourselves. It's also interpersonally, it's social. So it is this, this is why it's kind of hard to nail down a definition of self. And, and when we think about bringing who and how we are under control, because that is the, the facet of the fruit of the spirit that we're, that we're stepping into today, the question that follows for many of us is, why? <laughs> why self-control? I mean, especially in our cultural moment when the prevailing thought is that we are to be true to ourself. Why would I want to control myself if I'm supposed to like release my authentic self into the world? Well, uh, this is where distinctions become helpful. Uh, if you are a religious, that is like if you're not religious at all, then it's likely that that is what your view of self is. It is as the authentic self, where all of your desires are generally and genuinely good. So we'll get into that in a moment here. So, so let's just keep making these distinctions because according to the Bible, the human story is more complex than that. And it's actually quite a bit different. Uh, see, humanity is both beautiful, there is goodness, and we're also broken. And depending on the religious tradition that you grew up in and the stories that you live out of in light of that, either like beauty is put forward or brokenness is put forward. And generally when beauty or brokenness are put forward, they obscure the other. They kind of hide one over and against the other. And, and so here's what I mean. If if beauty is emphasized, that is like the innate goodness is highlighted, then humanity comes into the world as basically good. And really all we need then in that, in that reality is a healthier environment. And by healthier environment, I just mean a space with less and less sin, less corruption, if you will. And in that space, a healthier environment, really the good self will come forward. 
And conversely, if, if brokenness is emphasized in a tradition, then depravity is highlighted. And, and maybe that, that word is unfamiliar to you. This is just a term that more often than not describes the total corruption of the self by sin. So you would be totally depraved in reformed theological thinking and traditions. And here, humanity is utterly dependent on God to rescue them, as Paul would say, from the body of death. And just one point further here, because I think this is where many of us kind of um, like cut our teeth on theologically, is this is what I mean by sin. Sin is not desire for pleasure. Like desire is not sinful and pleasure is not sinful. These are gifts from God. Sin, however, is connected with self-gratification. The, the great North African theologian Augustine talks about the, in, um, like the inward turn, the inner cavatus, this inward turn toward the self. And so there, desire does this inward turn, and the end goal of it is our self. That is where sin and corruption and the perversion of those good gifts starts to come into play. And the spirituality of this sort that would say, no, 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 like, um, we are broken and we are totally depraved. We are totally in need of God to rescue us from the body of death. A spirituality like that could be summarized like this. I am nothing. Christ is everything. And this kind of spirituality views the self as being so sinful that really nothing good could come from it. That what is needed, therefore, is like the obliteration of the self and the creation of an entirely new spiritual self. So th this type of spirituality would link to texts where the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, would say things like, the old has gone and the new has come. Ironically, as we'll see later from Paul, um, he confronts that teaching that is held up by that type of theology. Because ours is less of an either-or kind of a story, beautiful or broken, and more of a beautiful and broken. It's a both-and kind of story. It lives in the tension of that. And more so, it's likely that Paul, who in Galatians 5 is calling the church to a spirit-empowered self-control, he would push back on both of these extremes, both of these frameworks. And again, Ray Anderson unpacks this beautifully saying he, that's Paul, would say we have a total inability. So it's a distinction between total depravity. That, that is that we cannot by ourselves restore ourselves to a true relationship with God and others. We need the grace of God to discover even our essential goodness. And I love that language of discovery. He's picking up on Jesus's teaching in Matthew 16, which is where we're going later today. So we need the grace of God to discover even our essential goodness. In Romans 3, when Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is no one righteous, he is able to say that only after he has experienced the grace of God, which has in fact rehabilitated his self. That language is key. Paul's self has been rehabilitated. He doesn't just have a brand new self after the old self has been destroyed. He has a rehabilitated self. This is the work of the gospel. So not only is this why there's a call to self-control, but it's also why we encounter Paul saying things like this. So in another letter that he wrote to some house churches in Rome, we read this in Romans 7. 
This is kind of a, a famous passage if you grew up in the church, even if you've just come to Christianity, this is like, this is something we feel in ourselves. So hear these words from Paul, starting in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. And we could stop right there, but it gets better. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. (sighs) So just sit with that for the rest of the day. (laughs) Try and get your head around it. And what you'll see is that Paul recognizes that both beauty and brokenness are at work in his self. In other words, Paul is describing the conflict of who and how he is before God, his neighbor, and the world. For me, reading this in Romans 7, it's like a yes and amen moment. So if you're like sitting in your living room um, or you're uh, like watching live, like put like a yes and amen in the chat box, give some hearts or something like a thumbs up because this is so true. This is what we feel in the core of our being. This same battle, the same conflict is alive in us. And I love how Robert Mulholland, who is a uh, like prolific writer on spiritual formation, just has some beautiful things to say in that regard. Um, he talks about this. He describes this conflict of self, and he gives us some further categories to help us here. He says this, you see, there are two fundamental ways of being human in the world, trusting in our human resources and abilities or radically trusting in God. You might describe these two ways of being in the world as the false self and the true self. So continuing to like describe the false self, this would be uh, what Paul is talking about as the body of, of death, like the flesh, the things that he doesn't want to do. He steps into them. He does them. The false self is what's being described there according to Maholland. And so he talks about this. He says, the reality of the false self is one of the hardest things to acknowledge. We tend to think of the false self as a surface phenomena that can be treated by a few cosmetic alterations in our behavior, and we are slow to accept the fact that our false self permeates, that is like gets all the way down to the core of our being. It's hard to admit that we are profoundly habituated to a self-referenced way of being. And now that might feel kind of technical, so let me just pause before we continue on in the rest of this quote. profoundly habituated, like we have worked these self-referential habits so deeply into our life that those are what are lodged in the core of who we are. Profoundly habituated, beautiful language. So it's hard to admit that we are this, that we are profoundly habituated to a self-referenced way of being in the world that manifests itself in characteristics such as fearful, protective, possessive, manipulative, destructive, self-promoting, indulgent, and making distinctions so as to separate ourselves from others. And then this is like the creme de la creme. (laughs) The false self is the self that in some way is playing God in its life and in its world. How does that sit with your soul? How long have you lived from that place? See, self-gratification 
is the chief end of the false self. Protection, possession, manipulation, self-promoting. Those all move toward self-gratification. That feels more broken than beautiful. So if this is true of us, if this is the conflict like at work in our self, where do we go? Like where, where do we go from here? Well, again, in Anderson's language, like we need the Spirit's presence and power to rehabilitate, to, to bring in to us a new power. So therefore, we'll ask another question. How do we bring our false self under the control of the Spirit? And for that, we turn to Jesus and to the gospel according to Matthew, to begin to look at this thing of self-control. And in Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, Jesus maps out that self-denial is the pathway to self-control and the age of self-gratification. And starting in verse 21, we read this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And in context, uh, what just took place, so from that time on, what was just before that is Peter just affirmed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that God's anointed one who would bring deliverance for the people of Israel. So Peter said, Jesus asked, who do people think that I am? Elijah, one of the prophets. Peter, you are the Christ. Yes. Then from that time on, Jesus says his direction is the cross. And when Peter hears that that is Jesus's trajectory in his ministry, he goes on to say this to him in verse 22. Check this out. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And that language here is this idea of an ongoing rebuke, began to. He's unpacking his rebuke. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And this, if we're honest, like this is our gut response to the cross. It's really like, like it's really easy to throw shade at Peter right here and think, no, 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 like, see, I would never do that. I would never say that to Jesus. I would say, yes, Jesus, let me follow you with my whole heart, with, with the, like, the, like my full self, let me come after you. But when I look at my life, like when, when I, and I think if you're honest, when you look at your life, we, we find that our speech how we live day to day, like the little moments in between the big moments, we are so adept at avoiding being laid low because it's so much easier to power up. That's what we've been trained in. That's in our cultural toolkit. We know how to do that. There's a cultural value for that. So much of me is actually crying out, this shall never happen. Like, I don't know if, <laughs> like, I don't know if I really want you to go to the cross, Jesus. Because if I'm gonna follow you, that means that's where I'm going. That's the tension. And if your story is similar to mine, like hear Jesus' response here in verse 23 and allow it just to, to do what it will to your heart. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. 
You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the human concerns. Yours is the interest of the false self. Then, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, so it's like rebuke to Peter, turning to his disciples. These are the people who have been called to be his apprentices, to, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did, to sit at the feet of their rabbi Jesus. Then to them, he says this, whoever wants to be my apprentice, my disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The whole movement here, rebuke and all, is this brilliant insight into our beauty and our brokenness, into life with Jesus and our refusal to go the way of the cross. And to be sure, like the call to take up one's cross is a call to come and die. Like, let's not get it twisted. That's what the cross is. It is a call to come and die. And although the cross may be a fashion symbol for many of us today, like I see people wearing them as earrings, which is, which is great. Like I'm not trying to throw shade on that or, or anything, not trying to minimize that. It's just, that's not the case for Peter. See, Peter had no illusion about the cross because the cross was the ultimate symbol of shame, defeat, and at its worst, death. And how can you have a Messiah who will deliver you if he's gonna die? Do you see the tension? See, today, in a culture where self-gratification is orthodoxy, like that is the life we live, we live our best lives, we're true to ourselves. If that's the orthodoxy, willfully picking up symbols of shame, defeat, and death in order to deny yourself, that is heresy. And I am more sure of that claim than I've ever been. And uh, like to even just press that deeper. I just watched this fascinating kind of jarring documentary called The Century of Self. It's free on YouTube. It's like by BBC. And the, the whole thing is about the West's shift from a needs-based economy to a desire-based economy. And the documentary highlights that after World War I, there was uh, like mass production, industrial revolution, all that good stuff. Um, I, good. And there's a surplus of goods. So the producers of these goods are like, oh my gosh, well, what if the market is saturated? What if people don't actually want to like, or don't need anything any longer? What's going to happen to the economy? Is it going to plateau? Is it going to, is it going, is it going to go into decline? What's going to happen? Enter Edward Bernays. See, Edward Bernays is called like the father of modern advertising. Um, and he's where the term like public relations starts to get its steam behind him. He really makes a way forward for that. And he applies the principles of his uncle, Sigmund Freud, to transform irrelevant things, what you eat, the clothes you wear, where you do your banking, into these mechanisms of well-being. So th there's this famous story that uh, in Manhattan, there's this uh, Easter parade that would take place. And a, um, a owner of um, American Tobacco, like came to Edward Bernays and he just recognized that like he was missing out on half of his market. It was, it was taboo for women to smoke in public at that time. And so he essentially asked Bernays to, to fix that. And at this parade, what Bernays does is he contrives a scene. So he gets these socialites, these young women, 
to strap like a pack of cigarettes to their to their inner thigh. And then at in the parade, they would all uh, lift up their dresses, which is scandalous in like in this time and place. And then they would take out their cigarettes and they would light them as quote unquote torches of freedom. And so Bernays like tips off the uh, the journalists and the media and that that this is going to be a, a like a suffragette movement. Uh, this is going to be a defiant act. And essentially what happens is this irrelevant thing like a cigarette is all of a sudden transformed into a torch of freedom. Think about Lady Liberty, the, the Statue of Liberty, a torch of freedom. Now, all of a sudden, this simple object is imbued with well-being, like the vote of the woman is, is attached to this thing. So if you're down with that, light up your torch of freedom. Do you see how that works? It takes it from a need to a want to a desire because your well-being is wrapped up in that. And Robert C. Roberts has this great line in a book on self and others uh, in the age of therapies that captures this so well. He says, we have been led to feel that the self is sacrosanct. Just as it was fitting in an earlier time never to deny God, so now it seems fitting never to deny oneself. Because to deny oneself is to be unwell. And the cross, it is the ultimate denial. And and I'm not talking about like surface level denial like we see in health and fitness and in uh, like careerism where we train our bodies, we discipline our diet, we end up working endless hours to get ahead because this type of surface denial is at its core a mechanism to to gratify deeper desires. It's a, a space where we can finally then buy that house, where we can finally be shown to be the success we truly are, where we can be loved and admired and all of those things. And I'm not trying to vilify like eating well or fitness or money. Those things are neutral. I'm just drawing out the point that if Jesus's call is more than a religious cliche, and I believe that it is, then Jesus is not only radically confronting the culture we inhabit that attaches our well-being to goods and services, Jesus is confronting our false self because our false self cannot fulfill the promises it makes. And so practically then, what does Jesus mean when he says, pick up your cross and deny yourself? And really, what does this have to do with self-control? Well, remember, self-denial is the pathway to self-control in an age of self-gratification. In all sincerity, like I've, I've come to see that this, this is at the core of life with Jesus. Do you remember Paul's words just a moment ago in Romans 7? I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. The self that we are to die to, the the self that we are to crucify, is is what Mulholland earlier called the false self. This is what Paul is waging war against in Romans 7, because life with Jesus is on the line. And I don't know if Paul has this in his imaginations, the teaching, but I, I wonder, I wonder if Matthew 16 is lingering in Paul's imagination and he's talking about doing the things that he does not want to do because life with Jesus is on the line. 
But listen to the, the rest of Jesus's words in this invitation to life, Matthew 16, 25, we pick up right here. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Notice this one word, will. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for Jesus' sake will find it. They will discover it. This is not they ought to discover it. They ought to find it. They will. And one of the most beautiful things about Jesus' teachings, like statements like, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword, is it's not a command. It's not an ought or a should. It's just a statement about reality. And this is so, like, Jesus isn't afraid of commands. I mean, he says things like, rise, have no fear. That is a command. But so often, he just states things about, like he just tells us what reality is about and then invites us to decide how we will relate to reality. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for Jesus will find it. This is the way life works in the kingdom of God. And really, denial, like self-denial, is about the categorical shift from life to life, from the false self to life with Jesus or our rehabilitated true self. This shift from life to life takes place in denial. See, in Jesus' kingdom economy, like the options are quite simple. You have two options. Option one, deny Jesus and follow yourself. Option two, deny yourself and follow Jesus. In option one, you lose your life, or you see... Um, it's kind of veiled in this life and soul are the same way, psuche. Uh, so in, in one, you lose your life or your soul. And in two, you find it. You discover your life or your soul. And so as, as we uh, kind of land the plane, let's just parse these things out. Option one, follow the false self, lose your life. <laughs> See, when we enthrone desire as the king of our life, it rules or rather, its rule feels like anarchy and disorder and chaos. What we start to feel is this disintegration inside of us. This, what Romans 7 so aptly describes, this not doing what we want to do and doing what we not want to do. Like, what is happening inside of me? It's disintegration. So no longer do we possess desire and pleasure as good gifts from God. Rather, we are possessed by them. And my guess is that right here, like in, like at some place in, in the, um, like in the recesses of your heart, those hidden places, you're pushing back. I'm not possessed by desire. Think about these lyrics. I can't get no satisfaction. Like you, you know the song. My, like whether you're Gen X, Gen Z, Millennial, Boom. Like you know the song because this is like a soundtrack for our culture. 
And as long as our method of dealing with desire is trying to get what we want, because we, we can't get no satisfaction, we will always be unsatisfied. This is just like a law of the human condition that the more you get, the more you want. And there's that famous Rockefeller, like oil tycoon, richest man in the world at the time, famous quote, journalist asks him, how much money is enough money? I think that's it. And then the little line is, just a little more. This controls us, just a little more. This, this past Christmas, um, the irony is like I'm teaching from just a little more right now. Uh, we we got, got a new iPad and then all of a sudden it's like, well, if you get an iPad, well then what are you gonna do to protect the screen? Well, you gotta get a little thing to cover that up and then, oh, well, what other like little apps are we gonna use? Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that I could put this on there. And before I know, it's like, it's not just a thing. It's like 18 more little things and gadgets and gizmos to go with that. But then I'm recognizing, oh wait, but there's already a new one in the works? Just so like, before Christmas, I didn't care. Like, I was, like, it didn't really matter. <laughs> then all of a sudden, that, that law of the human condition like comes to bear and it's like just a little more becomes, I, like, I just couldn't get any satisfaction. We're controlled by it. But when you no longer need what you want to be fulfilled, to be gratified, then all that's good in your life can be received as the gift that it is. This is actually where option two starts to come into play. We're following Jesus, you discover life. This is actually the place of contentment. And contentment is when ordinary life is enough. How, how do you feel about that right now? Like, do you, do you feel like your body is enough? Do you feel like your home is enough? What about your job, is that enough? relationship status. See, it's, it's likely that if you say things like, and this is comes out of like my own internal, this is like autobiographical, I will be satisfied when. Let's say you're single and you're saying, I will be satisfied when I have a partner. Well, it's likely that if you can't be satisfied in your life with Jesus now, then adding a whole human with all their mess and complexity to that will not satisfy you. See, we, we get to this place of contentedness not by getting what we want, but by discovering that the presence of Jesus is enough. It's more than enough. See, we have been created for intimacy with God, to have desire and pleasure as gifts from him, not to be ruled by them. You know, I've been following with Jesus like my whole adult life now, and it still feels like I'm just learning how to die in order to find life. And there's this quote from an author that kind of plagues me and captures our cross apprehension so well. Sky Jatani in this book called Divine Commodity says this, he says, my secret, which really feels like my secret, is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. 
So I, I think Sky writes what many of us feel. I think many of our secrets are exposed in that simple truth, that our false self is exposed right in that. And that's what makes denial so difficult is because we've spent the bulk of our lives living from that place, like living out of that false self, living for our own gratification. And if we crucify that self, the, the fear is that we won't even know who we are. Like we don't even know what it means to be in the world if that goes and dies. Like how many of us have either said or heard somebody say after a tragic mistake, either doing themselves or having been done to them, like I have nothing left to live for or my life is over, or I've lost it all. Even when those things are said in jest, it's like you peel back the layers and it's like, ooh. Yeah, what, what am I living for? And if the answer is desire, if the answer is self-gratification, then according to Jesus, that is the loss. That is the loss of your soul. But the finding of it, man, that comes in a different way. Here, there's hope here. This is not just brokenness, there's beauty here. Hear Jesus' words, whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, the invitation of Jesus is to find out who we really are. And this is where the point of self-control comes in. You're like, what, what happened to the fruit of the Spirit? What's going on? We cannot deny, let alone control, that is to bring into submission our false self if we're held captive by it. We cannot follow Jesus, live a life of self-control without first picking up our cross and denying that false self. See, picking up one's cross, denying oneself, it's not something that just mature followers of Jesus do or seasoned followers of Jesus do. The cross is the entry point into life with Jesus. So, so if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and what has indeed been put to death on the cross, you symbolically represented that going down to the waters, you've been raised to new life. If that's true of you, you're dead. So why do we feel pain over the lack of gratification? Why can't we get any satisfaction? Well, perhaps we're not living in the life we have in Christ. Perhaps we're clinging to a dead man's inheritance. You see, self-control is about living as though you are alive in Christ. Denial is about the movement. It's about the movement from life that we think is life to true life, to that rehabilitated self. And then self-control, this is, this is where it gets really good. It's not ours. Self-control is a gift. It is the fruit of the spirit of the living God bringing out the presence and power of God in our true rehabilitated self so that we can push back against the pangs of death that we still feel with the hope of the consummation of full life in God. 
So we live in the tension, beauty and broken. We find ourselves there. That is where self-control, empowered by the Spirit of the living God, comes into view. See, self-control, it's really not this heavy burden of sin management. That's not self-control. That's called religion. Self-control is a part of the Spirit's work. So just let that sink in. Are you willing to let the Spirit work in you? Are you willing to let the Spirit empower you in your weakness to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, the false self that offers up promises it can never fulfill? Are you willing to go there so that you can live with Christ? See, we cannot follow Jesus without first picking up our cross. And I just, just allow these words, again from Mahalan, just to help you see what this life is that we have in Christ. This life in Christ is where God's living presence becomes the ground of our identity, the source of our meaning, the seat of our value, and the center of our purpose. This is the life that God desires to blossom out. Uh, it doesn't matter how dry and cracked the soil of your heart. It's like we just, we take time. We show up to God and to one another. We pursue his presence. We seek to be formed into his image, out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus by the power of, like we, we enter into these things. And in turn, it's cultivating the soil of our hearts so that we could be rehabilitated into who we are. And at the risk of this sounding like self-help jargon, like the reality is that God is trying to take what is disintegrated in us and reintegrate it, to bring us into a place of fulfillment and wholeness. He is trying to actually make us new. So I don't know where you are as you're listening to this, as you're watching this. I don't know what type of attachments you have to that false self, the, the false sense of security that you get from that. But the prayer I'm about to pray as, as we close is that by the power of the Spirit, you would be able to detach from those things and reattach to God by the power of the Spirit, that you would tangibly sense the presence of God, like those things, like taking desire off the throne of your life and placing Jesus where he truly is. So let us pray. Father, I just come to you and ask that you would do a work in us by the power of your spirit, that you would help us to see that as we deny ourselves, that as we pick up our cross, and we all have one, that we would actually know that that is the way to life. Help us to receive the truth of the gospel that though dead, dead is not the end because life comes and that Jesus, you are seated, exalted on high and we are hidden with you in God, that that is what's true. That is where our life is found. 
It's the spirit of the living God. Break in to the hard soil of our hearts. Release the crutch, like the clutches of the lies of the enemy in our hearts that say that we won't be truly alive until this thing happens. Would you remind us of who we are in Jesus? Help us by your power to live as though we are alive, to be people who are formed by self-control. Come, Jesus, let it be so by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen.